0: This is Monday Morning QB, August 9th, 2021. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, if you thought Republican voter suppression and gerrymandering was bad, sit down. It's worse than that. The US and China discuss climate diplomacy. A select committee meets to hear about income disparities and help us with our income this morning. Support WPFW Monday Morning QB during our Summer Fun Drive. Our goal today is $500. Thanks to the listeners who contributed last week, putting us close to that goal. This week, help us reach 100. Call now, 1-800-222-9739, or go online to WPFW.org. Click the red Donate button, please. Stay with us. 18 states have already enacted 30 laws this year that will make it harder for Americans to vote. What that means is grim. Quote I never expected to say I'd be scared S on CNN, but that's how I feel election law expert Richard Hasen said on the network last Thursday. Put another way, the United States is on the verge of collapsing into a minority-ruled apartheid state with white Republicans openly ruling in behalf of their interests alone. And there is very little that can be done to prevent the future domination of the society by the right-wing forces. Those are the thoughts of David Daly, author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy.
1: We have come to the place that our representative democracy has really become much less fair and responsive and equitable And so much of it starts with the partisan gerrymandering that was really just turbocharged over the course of the last redistricting cycle a decade ago. And what we saw were states like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, all of them really gerrymandered into oblivion in many ways. So that um, by 2018, you had 59 million Americans, that's almost one in six of us, living in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature were controlled by the party that had won fewer votes in that election. And that's a really dangerous place to be in because gerrymandered legislatures. And politicians representing uncompetitive districts are insulated from voters and they're able to behave as extreme as they want without f- any fear that the voters can pull them back in. And that's exactly what they've done. Now, they've had an assist from this from the U.S. Supreme Court, which has really been a wrecking crew on voting rights over the course of this last decade um, beginning with the Shelby County case in 2013 that really eviscerated the uh, preclearance provisions and um, and turbocharged voter suppression efforts in many of these gerrymandered states. But whether the topic is the environment or mask mandates, emergency powers of governors, education, reproductive rights, labor rights, or, yes, voting rights, gerrymandered legislatures do what they want, not what the people want.
0: You've got dozens of states uh, which represent far fewer people than say New York and California, but which have equal or greater representation in the Senate. The deck is already stacked even When it's a fair fight.
1: Yes, I think you have your your finger on exactly the right question. Uh, What we are seeing right now in our nation is that the unrepresentativeness of just about all of our institutions has really come home to roost. You already have a U.S. Senate where, you're right, as you say, there's right now 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans but the 50 Democrats represent about 41 and a half million more people. Um, And then you have an electoral college system to choose our president that twice in the last 20 years has made the winner, the person who won fewer votes that in 2020 Joe Biden wins by seven and a half million votes in the popular vote. But, only wins the electoral college by 43,000 votes in three states of Georgia, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Um, And then, of course, the president and the U.S. Senate are able to choose, effectively, the members of the U.S. Supreme Court, and five of the six conservative justices, a majority of the justices on the court right now, were selected and appointed by presidents who lost the national popular vote. Um, so I think that we are amidst right now a full-blown crisis of minority rule, and the avenues by which Americans have to defeat this are shrinking rapidly.
0: Shrinking rapidly. Wow. Are you afraid that the GOP is intent not on governing well, but rather just on holding on to power?
1: I am. I think all you have to do right now, especially is look around the country at the kind of voting bills that are emerging from state legislatures in Florida, in Ohio, in, in, in Texas and Arizona. Um, I think there's, real cause for concern. I mean, look, our system managed to hold in 2020, but it was super close. That is to say that you could have the exact same vote, the exact same distribution of votes. if Everybody in the country votes the same way as they did in 2020. uh, And the outcome would be completely different because the lines in those states, will have moved on those district maps. Um, And if that had been the case in 2020, you'd have either Speaker Kevin McCarthy right now or even Speaker Donald Trump.
0: Wow. You just said, with this gerrymandering, it might be impossible for even a surge of voters to be able to overcome the short sheeting the thumb on the scale by the Republican party.
1: And I think that that's the real challenge at this moment is that, um, the courts aren't coming to save us and that a majority of Americans on, on these maps and within these institutional structures, um, might not be able to hold power. Um, so Democrats in Washington, um, have a real urgency to act. Uh, the clock is ticking. The maps that will define our politics for the next decade are about to be drawn. That process will begin in earnest later this month. And so you've got, you've got two bills under consideration in the for the people act um, and in the John Lewis the voting rights act. Um, and those have real urgency and, The fact that we are now in month uh, seven of a Democratic trifecta in Washington and we have not seen any movement on these bills, Democrats need to understand this might be the last chance they have to do anything about this for a decade Uh, and that our democracy demands that they act now to fix these problems and to attempt to inject some, some, you know, fairness and responsiveness back into our democracy before it's too late.
0: Call me Pollyanna, but I want to think that if there was again, a surge of voters like going for American Idol or draft night for the NFL, that people just all over the country, surged to the polls that it could overcome this cheating. But can, can the voters overcome without these laws being put into place?
1: I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, if you look at some of the states around the country, you look at a state like Wisconsin, where, for example, in, In 2018, I think this is a great example of how important these maps are. In 2018 in Wisconsin, voters there elected a Democratic U.S. Senator and Tammy Baldwin. They defeated Republican Governor Scott Walker and replaced him with a Democrat and Tony Evers. They gave Democrats every down-ballot statewide office, and they gave Democratic candidates for the State Assembly 203,000 more votes about 55 percent of the statewide vote and they only reduced the republican advantage in the state assembly by one to 63 36 so 55 percent of the vote amounted to 36 percent of the seats for democrats and for republicans 45 percent of the vote amounted to a little over 64 percent of the seats um that's really really hard to overcome um and that is state of play in 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 North Carolina and Florida and Ohio and, and, and so many states around the country. And these maps are about to be redrawn without any fear, now that the U.S. Supreme Court has has ruled gerrymandering to be a non-justiciable political issue, that courts will interfere. So they've effectively given lawmakers a green light uh, and eliminated any speed limits. Um, they're going to be able to draw these maps for next year that are as wild as they want in most states. Um, So, you know, I'm with you. I would like to be optimistic. I would, I would, I would, I would prefer to be Pollyanna. Um, But I think we have to be really clear eyed and um, be fully aware of what's happening around the country, which is, that these institutions of representative democracy are eroding and that minority rule is fast gaming and that it's not a coincidence, it's not an accident, this is happening by design, by intention, and the amount of time that we have left to do something about it is shrinking quick.
0: David Daly is a senior fellow at Fairvote and a former editor of Salon. His book is rat Eft: the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. A new culture war has emerged in the U.S., one focused on the teaching of history and racism. As we've documented on Monday Morning QB, the political right has sought to demonize critical race theory and paint any instruction about racism as CRT. But while the new conservative boogeyman is very much an imagined threat, the potential educational harm of teaching limited histories is all too real. Ms. Banker-Drowns
2: reports. Conservative activist Christopher Rufo tweeted in March his goal of turning critical race theory toxic by compiling a host of left ideas under the term and, quote, driving up negative perceptions. Months later, Rufo's misinformation war is in full swing, but not without opponents. The 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers has pushed back on bills introduced in dozens of state legislatures seeking to constrain how the history of racism is taught in classrooms. AFT President Randy Weingarten, who is also on tour promoting a safe return to schools this fall, spoke to me from outside a teachers' conference in Montana about this conservative effort to limit honest teaching
3: it's always hard to teach history k through 12 there's always been issues you know that have been touchstones and inflection points as you know america changes and so what they're doing is they're just trying to toxify it as a way of creating a political wedge and as a way of creating fear the the question about whether or not they'll be successful is a matter of whether or not we can be out there, not just AFT members, teachers, but whether good intention people around the country will say, wait a second, this is not what's happening here. And let's make sure that we don't deprive our students of what they need to succeed because somebody like, you know, Steve Bannon or Chris Rufo, or, you know, others want to try to win an election. You know, and it, we shouldn't have to do this orga- organizing. You know, we got a lot of other jobs we have to do. But if we really believe in giving the best opportunity to all our kids, that means making sure they are exposed to all the things they need to learn and to be able to, to navigate through that. And understand through that and arrive at their own conclusions and think critically. And, and that's our job as teachers. So long-term, I think we win this one, but short-term, it's really ugly in different places.
2: You know, you've been very consistent in highlighting the potential harms to students of teaching inaccurate or limited histories What are the long-term consequences for students both individually and as a generation if we fail to teach honest history?
3: The the long-term effects of, of not teaching accurately or honestly or ensuring that kids have to deal with troubled aspects of not only our past but our present is twofold. Number one, it denies the lived experience of people. If you don't teach about incarceration of Japanese Americans, you're not denying the lived experience, not only a generation of Japanese Americans in America in you know, the 1940s, but you know all of their descendants. And then if you say, for example, as Texas did, that you have to teach slavery as if it was a betrayal of the founder's intent. Well, that's just completely not true. You could love Thomas Jefferson, but it's inaccurate to say it was betrayal of intent when he owned slaves. And and what that does when you don't attack that is that it denies the lived experience of every family, every Black American in America whose descendants were slaves. So lived experience is really important. But the other thing that's really important is for everyone else who doesn't have this lived experience because they start learning about other people and about other things. And it creates a a much bigger and better um, palette in terms of what America is about. And, and, and the context and the rationale and the reasons for why things get done. And, and it gives them a sense of context that prepares them for their own lives, that, that it gives them a sense of critical thinking, a way of dealing with hardship of themselves and others. So frankly, I'd make the argument that it is as important for people who don't have this lived experience to be able to walk in other people's shoes and and to be able to be comfortable with that which is uncomfortable. We all in real life deal with uncomfortable things. Could you imagine if you get in school the muscles to deal with discomfort? It's gonna help you for the rest of your life.
2: It's clearly not just students at risk here, it's teachers as well, obviously, Accordingly, the AFT has invested further in its legal defense fund to support teachers at risk of violating some of these state laws, limiting teaching, honest history. Can you tell our listeners more about how this fund will be used and also talk about the preparation of litigation that you've mentioned right. a couple of times previously?
3: So you have to make sure that people know you got their back. And that's why we wanted to make the statement to our members in July you know, at a teacher conference, that we got their back. And and what happens is teachers are supposed to have some due process before they get fired. And in many cases, there is some level of process. It could be an arbitration. It could be going to courts. And so we, as a union, promise all of our members that if something like this happens to them, we're going to be there. With either a lawyer or a rep or funding for that, if you are a teacher listening to this and you have been bullied or harassed or you think that your job is in jeopardy because you've taught honest history, call our hotline, call the AFT. You know, send us a note, text me at you know my Twitter account or at the my AFT Facebook page. We we will find you. We don't want you to be alone, but we just need to know who you are and you need to be a member of ours for us to be able to do this. What we as a union are also looking at is that you know state standards require you to teach certain things in a certain way. And some of these new laws look like they are opposite what our profession requires us to do. So what we're looking at is to see whether or not we should seek those clarifications through a declaratory judgment action or not. And we're looking at two or three different states to do that. Um, But we're working with people because we don't wanna come in like gangbusters and create a real issue when there isn't one. Um, I don't know how much of this the ideologues are intending as simply a political issue bad enough for elections, or whether they are truly intending to censor, thwart, and stop our ability to do our job for our kids.
2: In an opinion piece for CNN, you expressed concern that the teaching of Japanese internment could be prohibited, and you mentioned this earlier, and this kind of begs the question for me, I'm, I'm curious how far this conservative curricular focus might expand. Is there concern that teaching around issues of, say, gender and class even could end up in Republican crosshairs?
3: Yes. I mean, if you looked at Betsy DeVos's so-called 1776 manual, that view was the founders were, you know, the greatest thing alive, and we should go back to the founder's intent for everything. That's basically their view of America, that all the things that have happened to actually make America more just, which I think is a great America story, that those things actually don't matter. Those struggles don't matter. So take Things like unions, or things like the National Labor Relations Act, or Social Security, or you know Medicare or Medicaid, that which started as an idea about how to create a social safety net, those are not part of American ideals. So you know historians panned that report when that 1776 project came out, but most people kind of looked at only the pieces where they talked about slavery and how repugnant that was um, because it looked like they were whitewashing it as opposed to, you know, um, all the other issues. And I think it's important to make sure that we raise these
2: other issues. We've touched on a lot of concepts and ideas here. Do you have any closing thoughts?
3: Just that we want, all kids in America to thrive. That's who we are as educators. That's frankly who we are as unionists. That's who our members are. And just give us the benefit of the doubt that we have the best interests of our kids at our hearts and that we're gonna do the best we can to create opportunity through a lens of justice. We want every public school to be a place where parents want to send their kids, where educators want to work, and where kids thrive. What educators ask for is just the voice and the respect and the conditions to do their work. That's what pre-K through 12 educators ask for. And to let us have the freedom to actually make a difference and figure out how to make a difference, how to use our professional to actually help our kids thrive so give us the tools and conditions we need that's what we ask for and we will succeed to help our kids have a better school year this year
2: that's randy weingarten president of the american federation of teachers for monday morning qb i'm chris bangert drowns (laughs)
0: The first meeting of a new bipartisan Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth was held a bit over a week ago. As stated in the resolution establishing the panel, The sole authority of the Select Committee shall be to investigate, study, make findings, and develop recommendations on policies, strategies, and innovations to make our economy work for everyone empowering American economic growth while ensuring that no one is left out or behind in the 21st century economy, End quote. To sum that up in five words, not a moment too soon. Wealth and income equality was at a record high before the pandemic and is only getting worse. Sue Goodwin has more.
4: Select committees are created by Congress as temporary panels that will conduct investigations or consider measures, usually on a specific topic, often one of great urgency. Sarah Anderson directs the Global Economy Project and co-edits inequality.org at the Institute for Policy Studies, and as she makes clear, any way you look at it, Economic inequality in America is a problem of urgent proportions.
5: If we don't turn this around, we're going to be even more vulnerable to whatever the next crisis is that hits us. Already going into this pandemic, we had 40% of American families who couldn't afford a $400 emergency bill while people at the top are making so money they don't know what to do with it except fly to outer space, you know. I mean, that just like says so much about where we are in twenty twenty one. And if Congress doesn't get serious about reversing this inequality, it's gonna make our whole country really vulnerable and, and keep us vulnerable for a long time
4: sarah anderson watched the first meeting of the select committee on economic disparity and fairness in growth remotely and with co-author justin compost wrote about what she observed in a posting at inequality dot org one of the first things they note is that there was not a single republican lawmaker in the room as it was originally designed the panel would consist of fifteen house members including six republicans But just two days before the first meeting, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pulled out all six members he appointed to the panel. Why?
5: Republicans are boycotting this committee, and they think it's because it's a way to really get at Nancy Pelosi and retaliate against her for vetoing two of their nominees for the January 6th commission. So they are refusing to participate in this inequality uh, related committee to get back at her for that. I kind of suspect they weren't really relishing the idea of sitting on this body with the likes of progressive champions, AOC and Pramila Jayapal and some other Democrats who were no doubt going to really skewer their views on inequality but that's the deal. So, so far it's just a Democrat-only committee.
4: Playing to that small and politically singular crowd were a number of witnesses invited to share their expertise on the extent and impact of economic disparities. Among them was Joy Cheney, Senior Vice President for Policy and Advocacy at the National Urban League. She made it clear why inequality at its core is a racial justice concern. And she laid out the range of issues the committee will need to address to take that on. Communities of color have long faced social and racial injustices and inequities across every indicator, education, healthcare, employment, housing, and small business development. Indeed, systemic inequity has been baked into the policies and practices at the federal, state, and local level of this country. This has resulted in vast inequities in our healthcare system, both in insurance and healthcare delivery, an education system that underserves black children and children of color, a biased employment landscape leading to gross in- income and wealth disparities between black and white households, as well as a greater unemployment amongst black Americans, housing insecurity and home ownership inequity for black Americans, disproportionate challenges faced by minority small businesses. The committee also began to hear about ideas they should consider, including this one from Professor James Galbraith at the University of Texas at Austin.
6: I would urge the committee to examine closely the proposal for to implement a federal job guarantee, uh, that would have the effect uh, in a, of eliminating involuntary unemployment and setting wage standards as well as providing a buffer so that people who need jobs could always get them. Uh, this would not be necessarily a large program, but it would also help private employers uh, who need to find workers because they could always find people who have good good track records in a, in an employment program of this kind. I think this is a very good solution.
4: Galbraith also used part of his time to critique the tax policies of the 1980s that he said gave rise to accumulations of wealth and an oligarchy of hyper-wealthy persons, and he had an idea
6: on that as well. Turning to the other side of the ledger, in fact, of the ledger, in fact, toward the uh, question of what you do about great wealth, I think the principle here is that the basis of taxation should be shifted away. Uh, from labor and also away from uh, from business and onto capital rents essentially, onto land rents, onto uh, mineral rents, onto uh, technology rents, uh, to tax as closely as possible the major accumulations, uh, and uh, to bring so far so, so to speak the new plutocrats back to earth.
4: The new select committee does not have the authority to actually draft legislation. What it will do is pass on its work to the standing committees that do. As Sarah Anderson describes it, it's a place to incubate good ideas. And an important point that Sarah Anderson makes is that it's not the only effort in play to address inequality. And to that, she draws our attention to the budget reconciliation process. Created by the Congressional Budget Act of 1974, it allows the Senate to pass measures with a simple majority vote. That means Democrats will be able to pass their resolution without having to meet the 60-vote threshold to end a filibuster.
5: That plan is where we're going to see things have a real chance of getting passed, like universal pre-K, Medicare expansion, free college, uh, lots of public investment in climate jobs. And one of the, I think, marquee proposals of the Biden administration is the $400 billion for home care to make care for the elderly and disabled uh, in their homes more affordable and increasing wages and improving working conditions for home care workers.
4: Of course, that doesn't mean ideas to promote equity won't face resistance, whether it's through the select committee process or budget reconciliation. But as Sarah Anderson says... Turning a blind eye to the extremes of wealth and income disparities in the United States is getting harder and harder to do.
5: I think the the data is just so startling to see how much the gains from our economy have gone into the pockets of so few people at the top. And I think that that statistic about 40% of Americans can't meet a $400 emergency, that that is just undeniable. Uh, Of course, there are still some dinosaurs who are going to hold out and say that inequality is a good thing. Uh, That means people work harder so they can strive to be like Jeff Bezos and get to fly off in their own personal rocket ship. But I think those voices are becoming more and more marginalized. And I think the the reaction of, of conservatives is more to just try to avoid the subject, uh, boycott committees like the new committee on, on economic disparity, but they're not out there in a full throated way really defending these mega billionaires and defending the the system that has created such extreme divides.
4: Sarah Anderson directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and co-edits inequality.org, which is where you can read the post she wrote with Justin Campos on the Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
0: As the clock ticks down toward the climate crisis, the world's large economies must work together to meet emissions targets and other goals. But instead of cooperation... Geopolitics has taken a competitive term in recent years, particularly between the world's two premier economies, China and the United States. There can be no climate solution without collaboration between these two giants, and prospects are not rosy. Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns has more.
2: U.S. confrontation with China is nothing new. President Obama launched a pivot to Asia in 2012 that saw economic and military resources reorganized in opposition to China. Former President Trump escalated tensions, first through a tariff war and then xenophobic rhetoric around the coronavirus. And according to Laura Steichen, Outreach Coordinator at the National Priorities Project of the Institute for Policy Studies, President Biden has continued that confrontational posture towards China, making diplomatic relations, particularly around climate, even more difficult to achieve.
7: Since taking office, President Biden has really continued to preside over what has really become sort of bipartisan belligerence towards China. That has included a new military ramp-up aimed at countering China's relatively modest military capabilities. That's included support for hawkish legislation in Congress that's designed to counter China and maintain US global primacy, and somewhat astoundingly, has wrapped otherwise independently popular domestic policies. So, green industrial policy, for example, which is broadly popular on its own, but the administration has wrapped these policies up in the language of zero-sum competition with China. Predictably, diplomatic relationships have continued to deteriorate in this climate, and this nationalist posturing from the United States really only flames domestic nationalism in China. And so what we've seen in response is that the Chinese government has really doubled down on its current
2: policies. China and the US have made stated commitments to work together on climate, but so far there's been little to no concrete action. And and US Mm -hmm. officials say that it's possible to sort of separate the very clear economic and military competition that you just described with China from what they desire in terms of a cooperative climate diplomacy. But you write that that's not possible. Why are they wrong?
7: Yeah, so ahead of the global leader summit on climate change that President Biden hosted in April of this year, the United States and China produced this joint statement expressing a commitment to cooperate with each other and with other countries to tackle the climate crisis. And while that was a promising message, that statement didn't actually include any new concrete efforts to work together And since then, we've seen tensions between the two countries continue to escalate. And I don't think we've seen significant evidence of cooperation on any issue between the two countries, including on climate change. And so I think it's a little naive to imagine that strong diplomatic relationships, which are necessary to work together on issues like climate change, can coexist with ramped up military posturing with confrontational economic policy, and with aggressive rhetoric. I think quite the opposite. These escalating tensions will only feed military budgets and the rise of nationalist policies, both in the United States and in China. And in reality, those kinds of policy decisions are really counterproductive, and they undermine the urgently needed climate solutions that like I said, necessarily hinge on strong international partnerships and global cooperation.
2: And you make the point that the Pentagon is, is clearly a leading global pollution emitter. And, and so it seems you know, obvious on its face that a, a reduction to the U.S. military budget would hypothetically both reduce Pentagon emissions and reduce tensions with China. Why don't China skeptics or China hawks in the Biden White House see it that way?
7: Yeah, so like you said, the Pentagon is a major polluter according to research from um, the Cost of War Project out of Brown University. The Pentagon is the single largest consumer of oil in the world and one of the world's top greenhouse gas emitters. And so reducing the military budget would be advantageous for both cutting emissions and reducing tensions with China But regardless of this reality, I think it's the instinct of the foreign policy establishment in Washington to identify a foreign enemy that really keeps the powerful military-industrial complex in this country operating smoothly. So there are powerful corporate interests invested in maintaining a militarized economy here in the United States. And So we really have to make a choice. Do we want to keep investing in military industrial policy that keeps us on this deadly path that we're on or invest in green jobs and low carbon jobs in the care economy that really produce a life-giving economy instead?
2: And you write that the, the US and China would bring complementary strengths to bear on this question of climate change. What are those complementary strengths and and why is it so important for these two countries in particular to act together on climate?
7: So the United States and China are the world's two most powerful economies. They're also currently the world's top carbon polluters. And I mean, the urgency is clear from climate scientists and from everyday people all over the world who are already living with the deadly impact of the climate crisis the time to act on climate change was like yesterday, but at the very least, it's now. And the United States and China as well must each do their fair share in addressing this global crisis. So what does that look like? First of all, clearly each country must rein in their domestic emissions. There's huge emissions loads coming out of each country. At the same time, each of these countries has the joint capacity to help finance the clean energy transition globally and help developing nations and poor nations reduce greenhouse gas emissions as well. And the United States and China each bring complementary strengths to global clean energy transition. The United States leads in research and development of clean energy technologies and has access to financial capital China leads the world in industrial capacity across a variety of clean technology industries. There are really important building blocks in each country that we ought to be finding ways to coordinate.
2: You know, it, lastly, it seems, it seems unlikely that the U.S. will change its competitive posture or, or its belligerence towards China without some shift in either international or domestic pressures. And it's unclear how much pressure the U.S. will face internationally. Looking domestically, what can U.S. social movements do to push for a more cooperative relationship with China and particularly for a diplomatic relationship around climate?
7: So there are calls from movements around the world for what's being called a global Green New Deal. And there's growing recognition from social movements here in the United States of the need to really expand popular domestic proposals for green industrial policy and green jobs to reach the scope of the entire global economy. And that sort of necessarily requires new forms of internationalism. So instead of leaning into tired and harmful frameworks of competition, we're in a really critical moment where we need to invest in strong international partnerships rooted in cooperation, in resource sharing, and in solidarity. And maybe that sounds a little pie in the sky, but the reality is is that the climate crisis, like so many of the crises we face today, like the pandemic and inequality, these are global crises. So, To meet them, we need to develop global frameworks, in this case, for green investment and industrial policy that actually confronts the global scale of the crisis.
2: That's Laura Steichen, Outreach Coordinator at the National Priorities Project of the Institute for Policy Studies. Read her piece for In These Times and Foreign Policy in Focus, titled Biden's Climate Pledges Are Incompatible with His Belligerence Towards China. And keep an eye out for the forthcoming Militarized Budget Report, tracking military expenditures across the federal government. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns.
0: Melissa DeRosa resigned as secretary to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo yesterday saying in a statement that the last two years have been emotionally and mentally trying. Like countless politicians before, Cuomo faces calls to step down after New York's Attorney General released a report less than a week ago alleging that Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women and violated state and federal laws. Cuomo has resisted calls to resign from top Democratic lawmakers and president biden but republicans like matt gates and donald trump on the other hand somehow seem immune to complaints about sexual misconduct according to the reverend greeland hagler pastor of plymouth congregational united church of christ in washington
8: to a great degree it seems to me that republicans are accepting that they and affirming that they live in a patriarchal, chauvinistic society, and that they will not take down one of their own over accusations of sexual misconduct, uh, because they uh, uh, have uh, accepted and, to a great degree, affirm that they exist in a in a in a very sec- male-oriented heterosexual uh, culture. Uh, Just like, um, in a sense, you know, it's that they will not sort of uh, embody racism as racism. But the thing is, is that they are accepting of white male dominance. Uh, And therefore, you know, the fact is, is that racism is not a great sin for them. And it's just like uh, chauvinistic behavior is not a great sin
0: for them. Is there a price to be paid for wrongdoing, a price that... A people, a company, a country, a society pays when you have so many corrupt leaders at the top.
8: Well, I mean, I think there's ultimately a, a, a hopefully there's a price to be paid, but there's not much evidence of that. I mean, look at what came out on on Donald Trump before the election, and folks still went for uh, uh, him uh, and still are defending him. So you got this. Uh, this uh, very, very uh, gross behavior and talk that's on record. On and, and when I say on record, it's been recorded. Uh, but it still does not phase. And, and one of the things that, uh, you, uh, that I look at is the Democrats tend to be very skittish around these things, not knowing whether to def- affirm it or to decry it. And so in a sense, you know, they have not chosen what they want to affirm. And I'm not excusing. Uh, male sexist behavior. But I'm just saying that you look at the behavior, the behavior is that they quickly run and dump for cover, run for cover, or they dump somebody on accusations. Uh, um, very seldom waiting to see whether uh, the charges are proven. Uh, you know, I mean, fact is you got an attorney general report that's out, that, which is a tantamount to an indictment. So there hasn't been a trial yet. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yet uh, there's this call uh, for resignation. Uh, so there's this, uh, skittishness on the part of the Democrats, but a skittishness around everything else as well. Uh, and, um, uh, in a sense, you know, um, uh, uh, a, a fear in which to establish, um, uh, what ground that they stand on.
0: What kind of bold action ought, uh, Democrats take in order to get out of this, kind of a skittishness mode and really get into getting things done.
8: Well, I think that's, I think that's a part of it is that in order to get things done, you got to be straightforward, bold, you got to press forward. Uh, and, um, and so in some ways we see the right wing being bold, uh, pressing forward uh, with a, with a, with a, all kind, with a kind of solidarity with one another where well, on the other hand, Democrats are all over the place and, 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 and fighting one another and distancing themselves from each other. Now I'm not, I'm not saying that when we look at this, that we excuse this kind of behavior, but it's just very interesting when you juxtapose the accusations of, of against Cuomo uh, to the accusations against Trump, for example, and you can go right on down the line. I mean, it's just like you pointed out in the premises that you get these folks um, still basically talking about morality and talking about the future of the country, even though we got all this evidence against them. And on the other hand, you got folks who are taken down. uh, And and we got to ask the question, why does a, a seemingly double standard exist? And what are the overall political ramifications of that double standard?
0: Do you have an easy answer?
8: Well, I think that I think I don't know about the easy answer, but I think that one of the things that uh, uh, is 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 important is that uh, Democratic Party really doesn't know what they what they believe and what they stand for at this point.
0: They do not understand what they stand for at this point. Period.
8: That's right. Period. I mean, that's why. That's why you got uh, them. They can. They want to fight what they consider the progressive caucus, and the progressive caucus want to fight uh, the other folks. They don't know what they, they don't know who they are and where they stand right now.
0: Graylin Hagler is pastor of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ. And that's our show for today, Monday morning QB. Is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Mohammed. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Thank you for listening and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.